0: So, Ben London, welcome to the Dig Me Out podcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, uh, this week's podcast, Jay, Tim, and I um, tackled 1995's Weasel's album by Alcohol Funny Car. So, it's been about, what, 16 or 17 years since the the release of the album. Um, In retrospect, what are your thoughts on the album?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I I sat down and listened to it today. because I knew that we were going to talk, and I hadn't listened to it for a while. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, you know, it's uh, it's some. Uh, I think out of all the Alcohol funny Car records, it's 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 aged pretty well. Um, you know, I think it's definitely we're the most self assured on that record out of all the ones that we've done. Um, you know, some of them are some of the singles and stuff. It's kind of hard to look at. It's kind of like you know, looking at bad uh, pictures from uh, elementary school or something, where you're like, what What was I doing with my hair? What was you know what, what <laughs> why was I wearing that shirt? Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's pretty good. You know, the one thing I, I hear with a distance is I definitely hear our influences a little bit more. You know, I, 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 you know, there's some songs that's like, oh yeah, I was listening to that record a lot, uh, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, I mean, I uh, I think there's some good tunes there. I mean, I think I've realized over the years that about myself is that I kind of write batches and songs and sometimes it's, or, or write uh, songs and batches rather mm-hmm. and, uh Sometimes uh, to edit a little bit more, like sometimes you write four or five songs that kind of maybe sound a little similar and maybe it's time to choose the best one or two rather than using all five, something like that. So, um, eh,
0: you know, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Right, so you said that you can hear the influences. What influences would you say you had when you made the record or do you hear now when you listen to it again?
1: (laughs) Well, I think from a production standpoint, we were real excited to work with uh, this guy Bruce Calder that produced it. He had... Is from Seattle originally, uh, but had was living out in New York at that point, and he uh, did some other mother, early Mother Love Bone stuff. I met him when he was in town doing a Love Battery record, um, and we really hit it off. But um, you know, some some records that we were playing a lot at that point was uh, um, uh, that a dinosaur junior record, um, oh, which I'm totally spacing the title on uh, the one with uh, get chopping on it and stuff. Uh, you know, they one of their mm-hmm. first, uh, I think, their second Warner Brothers record, and then. Uh, you know, the first bar for Sugar Record, um, uh, Afghan Wigs, Gentlemen. I mean, a few things like that where it was like, you know, just stuff that I, I don't think we were consciously trying to rip it off, but just stuff I was listening to a lot. And then you mix that with the older music, you know, like the Hooskadoo stuff and Squirrel Bait and, uh, you know, uh, Minor Threat and Fugazi and, you know, just a bunch of stuff that was kind of in the blender already. And, you kind of put that all together, and and that's what kind of comes
0: out uh, on that record, right? So, so both Jay from the podcast and I have uh, an '80s hair metal background and into that kind of stuff. And um, Jay said he thought he heard some, maybe not '80s hair metal, but kind of some of the some of the uh, stuff that led up to '80s hair metal, maybe some <laughs> Kiss or Cheap Trick and that kind of stuff. Would you would you say that? Oh, without
1: a doubt. I mean, I grew up on that stuff, and I mean, I'd be the first to admit that you know, I mean, I cut my teeth on on '70s and '80s metal. You know, I mean, you know, I, I was saying some of the other day. You know, Van Halen is the one band that I've unapologetically liked my whole life. Uh, you know, I mean, I just one of the first albums I ever bought was Van Halen One. You know, it was really it was never quite good enough to play guitar like Eddie Van Halen, but some of the chord voicings and things definitely came out. And uh, you know, I was into. I didn't You know, I had an older brother that was really into music, but was really much more into like punk. And I remember you know, being listening to, like, the first Clash record and the first Ozzy record and not seeing a difference between the two of them when mm-hmm. I was, like, in seventh or eighth grade or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> and in some ways, that's kind of what Alcohol, Funny Car represented. It was sort of like somewhere in between metal and, and punk rock and, but with some melody in it. And, uh, you know, I've always loved the radio, and I like hooks and, and uh, was trying to kind of get to all that stuff, uh, whether it was consciously or, or subconsciously. Right, so you
0: grew up in the Cleveland
1: area, is that right? I did. Uh, most of my, my formative years, I was there from about sixth grade through high school, yeah.
0: And um, so was WMS an influence as well?
1: Oh, it was massive. You know, it's like, I, I it's so funny now, you know, I've, I've gotten I've been on these binges lately of going back and digging through Cleveland music, you know, I mean, I was always really into, <clears throat> once I left and got more to music, but you know, it was like, like Perubu and the Dead Boys and, and things like that that came, you know, Rocket from the Tomb that came from uh, Cleveland. But yeah, WMS was a big influence and, you know, they were really adventurous for their time and the music they were playing. And so whether it was kind of like, you know, playing The Clash or playing, um, you know, that stuff would be mixed in with Cheap Trick or would be mixed in with, uh, you know, Ozzy or Black Sabbath or, you know, other hard rock um I mean, I'm just trying to think, you know, like, whether it was, like, Judas Priest or, um, and then more like, you know, Cleveland stuff like Michael Stanley Band or or stuff like that, where it all kind of came together, but it was, uh, and then, you know, uh, in early 80s, you know, when that kind of, like, heavy pop sort of stuff came in, which was kind of like, you know, your Lover Boy and Foreigner and, uh, REO Speedwagon and stuff like that, you know, I mean, I I listened the hell out of that stuff uh, on the radio and, uh, and then really just kind of got proselytized or or went over to the more punk rock thing probably when I was more, or new wave punk rock in uh, high school and then into college big time. Right. So you went to college at Antioch, right? I did, yeah, in, in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yes. And, uh, 45 minutes from Columbus.
0: Right. So how did you end up in Seattle? I know that, um, <laughs> I don't know much about the history, but I've I read some of the stuff that, that sure, the sure. whole collective of well, people you went know, out there.
1: Yeah, yeah, so we, uh, had this band I was in called Big Brown House, and another band that shared some members with Big Brown House called The Gits, and, uh, this woman named Valerie Agnew, who ended up being the drummer in Seven Year Bitch, and then, uh, this guy, uh, Julian Gibson, and this woman, Carla Sindel, they had a band called, that ended up being called the D.C. Beggars, and, um, we decided that we all wanted to move somewhere to play music, and we were in, you know, in, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is pretty rural, and, uh, we kind of narrowed it down to four cities we were thinking about New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, or Seattle, or I guess San Francisco was in there. San Francisco more than Los Angeles, rather. And, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, whether it was New York was too expensive or Chicago was too close to Ohio and um, San Francisco seemed too expensive. And we decided on Seattle just because some of us had traveled through there for one reason or another in the year or so prior. And it seemed like a good place to go And, and just, by chance, turned out to be a good place to be for music. I mean, I was a DJ in college on uh, WYSO in Yellow Springs, and uh, the only band that I'd heard of at that point from Seattle was Soundgarden, just because we got that Ultra Mega OK record that was on SST uh, that we played at the station. Right. And, uh, you know, so there really wasn't even that much of a thought process like, oh, well, Soundgarden's from there. We should go out there. It was just sort of like, well, there's a band. There are bands out there, but we just want to go someplace where we can go do our thing. And uh, we moved out there and we started, you know, uh, kind of meeting other bands and putting out records and put out our own records at first and then got signed to uh, some local labels here and uh, that's where, you know, that Weasels was the last record we put out for CZ Records which put out the Records and Seven Year Bitches Records before they, uh, before Seven Year signed with Atlantic and, um, uh, you know, it was a, not a not a it was a great experience in that we got to make records and do all that stuff but being on that label was uh, not a great
0: experience right so when you moved out there was kind of the the beginning of the national attention for Seattle uh, a little bit before so we moved
1: out august of 89 okay so like i said that there was <clears throat> you know nationally people kind of had a sense of Soundgarden garden because they were on sft and people had maybe heard of uh, you know green river at that point or mudhoney was getting going um there was like, uh, you know, Coffin Break was another band that had toured a bunch at that point, Um and Skin Yard and some things like that. But, uh, you know, when we moved out, you know, to be honest, we were really kind of like, I mean, Mudhoney and, you know, the cold sub pop thing seemed super kind of clicky and, and we were kind of contrarians and so kind of wanted to do something that was completely opposite of that and kind of moved against the grain on that, but, uh, you know, it's kind of, I kind of, laugh at ourselves now about it, but at the time, uh, we kind of were insular and kind of focused on our own thing and met some like-minded bands, like the folks in a band called Hammerbox, uh, Gas Huffer, The Derelicts, um, uh, Subvert, a bunch of just bands from here that we kind of got along with, probably, you know, more as friends or whatever than anything, and uh, and then it just happened to be a great place to, you know, be a part of this one. Everything exploded.
0: Right. Uh, so. So, so obviously everybody knows about the whole. Like you just said, the grunge explosion. Um, did it? Did it feel that way? Did it feel like Seattle was under the under the microscope? And I mean, could you feel it as a band there?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I always joke that you know we we had an experience that we probably as a band that we probably never should have, and the, you know the amount of uh, major label interest we had and labels flying us around and. All this sort of stuff. You know, if we hadn't been from Seattle, I can't imagine that would have happened uh, in the same sort of way. But it was kind of crazy. I mean, it was like there was a couple clubs that were, you know, kind of like the clubhouses for the scene, you know, like the Crocodile Cafe and the Rock Candy and places like that. And it got to be kind of weird that you'd be, like, at the Crocodile on a Friday night, and there'd be a bunch of people there. And, you know, like at this point, people in town, you know, whether it's like Babes and Toyland or these different bands that were kind of big from other areas were spending a lot of time here and you'd be just, like, hanging out with your friends doing your thing, and then there'd be, like, the next month a magazine, you know, if, you know, one of the music magazines would come out, and there'd be, like, a bunch of pictures of people just, like, hanging out in Seattle. Right. It As it's just, like, some random night. <clears throat> but, you know, I mean, I kind of found it, I mean, it was really strange, but I also found it kind of exciting, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion recently with it being the 20th anniversary of uh, Nevermind and stuff, and my band now, we were part of a, tribute thing we did with Chris Novoselic and uh, some folks a uh, couple weeks ago, and, uh, uh, and that, you know, these books have been written, and, uh, you know, I've done interviews for several of these grunge oral histories at this point, and, uh, you know, people focus on the rod of the darkness of that period, but it was also kind of exciting, too. You know, I mean, it was kind of exciting that all these bands that had worked really hard were getting this chance, uh, you know, so, you know, we know about the big four, you know, we know about Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Nirvana, But, you know, there are the great bands that, um, you know, there's like Flop and there's, um, you know, down in Portland like Heatmiser and all these bands that we played shows with that, um, you know, were getting record deals and getting to make records. Because, you know, it wasn't that the the goal, wasn't that like the dream all along that someday you'd you'd get to make records and have people put them out for you and go on
0: tour and do all that sort of stuff. So that was really exciting. Right. So you said that you, did did you guys try to separate yourself a little bit though from the sub-pop scene? Yeah, I
1: think so, just only because I think that musically, uh, when we first arrived, you know, the music that the Gitz was doing, um, that later that Alcohol Funny Car was doing and some things, it was just leaning, it was maybe a little more influenced by sort of English punk rock or, um, you know, more traditional 77 style punk or rock and roll and a little less um, metal influence, Mm -hmm. even though I've got a lot of metal in my background. Um, so I think that when we first got out here, it was sort of understanding, like, what is, you know, it just sounds like Black Sabbath or something. Why, why you know, why, that's, you know, that's like old. Why would you want to do that? And then, you know, in, uh, over time, you definitely see the, uh, you know, the, I don't see the, the, uh, the divisions at all now the way I did at that particular moment in time. Right. But uh, I think, you know, we probably embraced some of the sort of grunge, Tendencies or some of that influence a little bit more than some of our contemporaries that we moved out with.
0: Right. So is it the kind of thing where you could go to a club and or a record store or a restaurant and bump into Kurt Cobain or Lance Daly or?
1: Somebody else? Oh yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I mean, I, I didn't know them those folks as well then as I do now, but I mean, you know, there were certain places like, you know, I have one great story is that Nils Bernstein, who's the uh, publicist at. Uh, Matador has been for a bunch of years now. He's used mm-hmm. to work at Sub-Pop, but he had a record store here in Seattle called Rebellious Jukebox. And I used to go in there, buy records all the time, and just talk to Nils because, you know, he knew about great music and stuff. And him saying at one point, you know, a kind of like post Bleach, but pre Nevermind, where he was like, Yeah, I'm going to, Nirvana asked me to start doing their fan club stuff for him. And so he, uh, you know, his, his PO, he got the PO box or whatever, and, um, and he started telling me stories, like, as Nevermind was coming up. He's like, man, you won't believe it. Like, uh, I got a call from, uh, you know, Gary Gersh from their manager that says, you know, they're going to be at number one. They're going to beat Michael Jackson next week. <laughs> and they're like, what? And then, uh, you know, it went from him getting, like, three or four letters to five letters to ten letters to them, like, showing up with, like, two and three giant mail bags worth of mail. Right. You know, in the course of, like, a couple months. Right. And um, I remember him telling me this really funny story where, like, at some point, somebody had written a letter that was like some guy that knew Kurt from Aberdeen, and he's like, man, I was I was on watching you on TV, I'm in prison, I was watching you on TV, and you came on, and I was like jumping up and down, and, you know, screaming, I was like, that's my buddy Kurt, I can't believe my buddy Kurt's on TV, <laughs> and he was like, you remember how your mom used to tell us to stop making noise in the basement? well, you showed that bitch, didn't you? <laughs> and we were just like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. You're going to write somebody a letter like that. But it but it was pretty awesome. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, all those folks were around. Um, you know, whether it's was Mudhoney guys, I mean, the Soundgarden guys, and, you know, I mean, there was connections like Stuart Howerman, who was uh, Soundgarden's front of house guy, an old friend of theirs, like had a recording studio called the Vast, where we that's where we recorded that Weasels record. Um, and so while we were making that record, I remember, like, Chris Cornell and Matt Cameron swinging through to grab some piece of gear from Stewart or different things like that, and you know, it just, uh, it just kind of, you know, it was what it was. It's, uh, you know, it's there's ever since then. There's been a regular flow of bands from Seattle that have gotten big on one level or another, and and uh, you know, you just kind of see folks around and people let them be, and and that's that, pretty much.
0: Right. So my introduction to Alcohol Funny Car was probably the way. A lot of people's was and I, or maybe not. I don't know how many albums, or how many copies Brain Scan soundtrack sold. But uh, I remember that was the first time I heard you guys. Was um, did you guys consider that was, a, was that a hit song for for the band?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that song shapes yeah. of Brain Scan was probably our biggest song, um, and that's the one that um off of our time to make the Donuts record that really got all the record label attention so we put an EP out first called burn it was like a five song EP and we definitely had some labels starting to sniff around like Capital and um, and then when that record came out and and you know there was the crazy stuff going on with just Nirvana blowing up and everybody looking for the next Nirvana and uh, so Rough House which is uh, Cypress Hills label and the Fuji's label decided they wanted to start doing rock music so this guy Chris Schwartz uh, who was the head of that label came out here and was interested in signing us, and so as part of him courting us, they asked us to be on that soundtrack, and actually ended up making us the single on it, and made a video for it and stuff like that. And uh, uh, and yeah, and they serviced it to radio, and then you know we kind of stupidly uh, you know held out thinking that we were going to you know create some sort of bidding war or something, which is kind of ridiculous to think about now, but quite uh, normal at that t- quite normal at that time. Oh yeah. And uh, probably should have, uh, you know, just gone ahead and signed with those guys and moved forward because, uh, you know, they had the, the machine to do that. But uh, we kind of didn't and then ended up uh, <coughs> kind of in a worse situation uh, when CZ did a deal with a, with a a label called Volcano at that point that had uh, been, uh, or Zoo rather, that had been like Tools Label and um,
0: Matthew Sweet and a few things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Yeah, so, sorry, go ahead. To- no, I was going to say, did the, did the success of Shapes, um, did that play any factor into how you wrote this stuff for Weasels? Like, did you, uh, you want to make another song like that?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it really definitely worked. We weren't trying to reproduce that, per se, because I think that while we were getting this record ready, it, I don't know if that Gosh, you know, I don't know. I, it's an interesting question, Chip. I've never really... You no, know, I don't know. I don't think it did. I mean, I think, if anything, I was just more... Like I said, you know, hearing those influences, is probably just like had fallen in love with a different, another new record, and was like, oh, I want to write a song that's like as killer as that, or try to do that. And um, uh, I think that I don't know if you were to look at if you look at the trajectory of those records. I mean, I think that if you're, our singles and some of the other stuff was maybe a little uh, light, more lighthearted on the front end, mm-hmm. and maybe we were getting a little more serious. You know, I'm putting. Parens parentheses up in the air right now as I'm saying that right. on that record uh but um yeah I don't know I mean I think it was probably just influenced by a bunch of the stuff I was listening to and uh you know uh I don't know I'm trying to find that place where it was still heavy but melodic and
0: and all that sort of stuff right so you'll you'll hear as as we review it that heavy and melodic are, are words that we toss around quite a bit in the review um and I think I, it, I posed it, or maybe Jay posed the question of, um, I think I did, about um, what you may have sounded like had you had a second guitarist. Mm-hmm. Um, because I can definitely hear, I, I hear um, uh, a lot of bands, you may not even be familiar with them, but like this band called For Love, Not Lisa. Um, I know them.
1: the name, but I don't think I ever listened to them. Well, you know, that, and that, that you know, actually Weasels has a lot of, Overdubbed guitar on it, a lot of stuff that I did, and that, um, and that for the shows and stuff kind of leading up to that record, like we'd already recorded the record, but touring it and then touring it afterwards, we actually had a second guitar player that started playing live with us, a couple different people. So my friend Harris, who was a guitar player in Hammerbox, they had since disbanded, he did some shows with us. And then my friend Andrew McKeg, uh, who was in a band called Uncle Joe's Big Old Driver. Um, who actually plays guitar in the Presidents of the USA now, um, uh, did some dates with us, and my brother actually did a tour down to South by Southwest uh, on that record, just because a bunch of those songs felt really naked just in the trio
0: format. I I almost felt like if you had uh, a uh, a guitar player who came from a more metal background, you could have almost fallen in to almost like a helmet quicksand vibe a little bit. I mean, there's definitely that, that... (laughs) <laughs> that heavy and it's melodic totally. going on Oh
1: yeah, I mean, I could totally see that I mean, you know, that's partially like like The Fugazi influence or something yeah. like that And that, you know, we actually did a tour At one point, a short tour with the Bad Brains And Prong, <laughs> you know And, uh, and you know, they You know, I think that um, You know, people often There were definitely people that saw that heaviness Like there was a label called, uh, out of New York That was tried to sign us at one point Called Mechanics that had Signed Tad, and they had a uh, Oh, God, they had made their... They'd, their claim to fame was they had signed Trickster, I think. Oh, yeah. Was Trickster, was that Give It To Me Good? Is that who Trickster yep. was? Yep. Yeah, so they they you know, signed them and they had a deal through Atlantic or something like that. And so, you know, it was all... We were an interesting band in some ways that the metal people kind of heard the metal in it and the pop or the punk people kind of heard the pop and the punk in it. Right. And uh, uh, so it just kind of depends. You know, we were the ultimate uh, fence-sitters, I guess. <laughs>
0: So that that is a good lead into the next question. And you mentioned a couple of bands like Prong and Bad Brains. What other bands did you yeah. tour with?
1: Well, like, gosh, we did a we toured with Love Battery. We toured with Pop Defect. We did a bunch of dates with them. Super Suckers, uh, Possum Dixon. We did some dates with. Um, trying to think, who else? June, the Tree People. Uh, you know, just a bunch, and then. You know, we played with, you know, on our own tours, played with all kinds of bands. You know, everybody from uh, Liquid Jesus and Sweet Lizard Il Tet to, uh, you know, there were just so many bands on major labels at that point. It was kind of crazy, you know, to Walt Menker or whoever else it might be.
0: Right. So did Alcohol, Funny Car break up after the Weasels tour, or was it something where before you started writing the next record, you just kind of decided not to do it?
1: Um, I think I just kind of, I mean, I think we were all getting worn out, and, uh, you know, we, we kind of, as a band, had some drummer issues, you know, I mean, I think probably our best lineup, purely musically, was, was the lineup that made the time to make the, the the EP and the, and the first album, even though those records don't necessarily reflect it, um, Buzz, uh, Crocker, who was the drummer on those records, was just a really great drummer, and, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, he had some issues that, that made it, had him not be able to continue playing with us. But, uh, the, um, and Joel actually, you know, was a, the guy that plays drums on Weasels is a great drummer and went on and played with Nico Case afterwards and stuff like that. And, uh, I think it was just sort of, you know, I, you know, with the maturity of being older now, um, you know, he kind of stepped into a weird situation with a band that was already established and we were going through all this label stuff and, um, you know, but, Thing, the dynamics of having a trio is there's kind of one person that's always the odd person out and unfortunately I think that was him sometimes but um, right. I just kind of felt like we were getting diminishing returns and we had dealt with all these labels and it looked like we we're you know we got offered a couple deals but they didn't seem like what we wanted and and feel like the interest was waning and I just kind of felt like I don't know just kind of felt like the writing was on the wall that it had peaked, it had kind of peaked and uh, didn't know you know, it was just feeling like I wanted to do something else, and, um, and so we just kind of decided to shut it down, and, and, uh, you know, ended it kind of as friends, um, primarily between Tommy and I, uh, then, uh, then try to keep going and see what would happen.
0: Right, so that, that inspires two questions. The first is, um, you know, this being the internet era, obviously, um, there's always the, the mystery unreleased record? Is, is there an unreleased alcohol funny car record? Or did you guys no, even no, start a new? No, no,
1: no, not at all. I mean, we, we didn't do that much. We didn't actually do that much touring on Weasels. So it's like we did a lot of touring leading up to it while we were trying to figure out where the record was going to come out. Um, we did a little bit afterwards, but we were just kind of running on fumes at that point. Um, I have a bunch of four-track tapes and stuff of maybe materials we were working on. Right. Uh, starting to think about, but not like complete stuff. I mean, a lot of like riffs and and you know ideas. Uh, and then um, yeah, and then you know, I mean, it, I definitely we were less prolific back then. I mean, I'm quite more prolific now in the bands that I do write a lot more songs on a regular basis. But it took a lot longer to kind of get stuff to gel and come together back then. Right. So no, there there isn't the, there isn't the special loss record. Although so I did find a. <laughs> I did find a live recording of a set we did at the Crocodile when we came back from tour. I think we were playing with, like, the poster children or something like that, and uh, that's quite good. Uh, it just, you know, kind of shows us at our height when we were really tight from being on the road a lot, and I think yeah, I just have to get around to digitizing that and just think about putting that up on iTunes or someplace for free oh, yeah.
0: uh, for people that might want to check it out. Very cool. And then we'll get into your your post-alcohol funny car stuff um, in a second. One of the other things, I don't know if you, you, in the the episode you listened to, but um, Tim always does kind of a history of the band, and we try to uh figure out where everybody is today. Um, And actually, I I sent Tommy a note on Facebook, and he actually responded. So it sounds like he's not doing much musically anymore, if anything.
1: No, he has, uh, him and his wife uh, and their kids uh, bought out uh, like a, From what I understand It's kind of like A general store Hardware store That's out in Leavenworth, Washington
0: Mm -hmm.
1: About It's about two hours From Seattle And he just moved out there About eight months ago Or nine months ago So uh, I haven't had a chance To see him Since he moved out there
0: Yeah
1: But uh, yeah He's uh, I mean I think he's You know Still plays for himself but he's not playing in an organized band or anything like that.
0: Right, and then you said, and, and Joel wasn't necessarily like the full-time drummer, but...
1: No, I think, I think he's not, I don't know if he's playing at all. He, you know, he lived in Tacoma the whole time, and so I, don't, I really have not seen him more than once or twice since we stopped playing together. Um, my brother did some work with him, and uh, I know that, you know, he was playing with Nico Case. He was in her band, The Boyfriends, for a while, and then he was playing in a band called The New West Motels for a while, but I think he's just, uh, you know, being a parent and, uh, uh, you know, doing work stuff and whatnot. Right. And then uh, Buzz Crocker, our original drummer, lives uh, in Chicago uh, with his wife. And uh, I think uh, we have Facebooked a little bit over the last couple years. And uh, yeah, I think he's talking about maybe playing a little bit at some point, And, you know, he uh, has some family that lives out here in Seattle. And so he has an open invitation if he ever... Uh, comes out this way we had talked about maybe getting together and playing a little bit for old time's sake
0: cool so so let's get into what you've done since Alcohol Funny Car I mean I I know you've done both bands but you've also been involved in the music industry outside of performing so why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about all that
1: sure sure so uh, when the band broke up uh, or I kind of shut the band down in 96, 97 I was kind of sitting around thinking like now what you know and uh, Uh, at that point I heard through a friend of a friend that this they were going to start building this Jimi Hendrix Museum in Seattle, and I have a visual arts degree from when I was in college, and I've always been a big music fan, and so I was like, kind of had this epiphany moment then where I was like, I need to work there. This is the perfect job for me. I need to work there. And uh, by Hooker, by Hooker Crook, I met somebody that met somebody there, and worked my way in and. You know, kind of had one of those moments where I was like, went in and was like, "I want to work here," and they're like, "We have no jobs." And I was like, "Well, I'll work here for free. I'll intern or whatever." And um, they, uh, I started interning there, and uh, within a month, got hired full time, and was there for about seven and a half years uh, with what turned into be Experience Music Project, which is a 140,000 square foot interactive music museum in Seattle. I was there until 2004. Uh, you know, and I was involved with the <clears throat> uh, a lot of the uh, artifact acquisition and media generation for exhibits and things. And there's actually a great uh, Nirvana exhibit up that just opened a couple months ago. That it has a bunch of stuff in it that I collected when I was there. And then in 2004, I uh, went to work for uh, the Grammys. And uh, they have uh, uh, 11 offices around the U.S., or 12, I guess, if you count the headquarters in Santa Monica. And, uh, so I ran the one here in the Northwest, uh, from 2004, uh, until 2010. No, 2004 until, or 2005, to 2000, somewhere in there. So I was there for about five years. And then, uh, about a, 18 months ago, I started working for uh, Hewlett Packard doing, uh, music and media business development for them. So doing something a little bit different now, but, uh, but still involved with the music and and, and media,
0: right?
1: And then band-wise, the so band-wise, uh, I kind of kicked around a little bit after I called Funny Carve. wasn't quite sure. I thought I was going to make a solo record, and it just stuff was. I realized over time that I do better working with other people than by myself, and uh, which I think is the classic band thing to do is that you're in a band and you're like, man, well, finally, if I have my own band, I can do it all my way. And then you kind of do some songs, and you're like, this is really boring with me doing everything. This is not good. So um, I formed a band uh, called Stanford Arms, which is basically got some friends to help me out with a bunch of songs I'd written, and uh, we ended up doing two records with that band. Uh, uh, one, the first one was called Too Loud for the Snowman, and the second one was The Twilight Era, and that was a much a big departure from what I did in terms of Alcohol Funny Car. It was a very sort of sonically uh, diverse, um, really much more low uh, energy sort of atmospheric uh, pop band kind of along somewhere in bet- between the sort of Flaming Lips and Wilco, uh, Mercury Rev, Granddaddy, somewhere in that space, and uh, did that. And then um, after that, I uh, had a band called Burning Rivers and my friend Joshua, who was in another great band from the 90s called Citizens Utilities, who were on mute. And that was kind of a roots band that we did uh, for about a year or two And we did one record uh, called The Hardest Part of Letting Go. And then about, I don't know, 16, 17 months ago, started this band that I'm doing now called Stag um, with uh, some friends, again, but my friend Steve Mack, who was the singer for a band called That Petrol Emotion from England, uh, who was was a band that was formed with the guys from from the undertones after they left the undertones. And uh, he's from Seattle originally. And uh, Rob, who was the drummer in Sanford Arms, and my friend Pete, and uh, a guy named Lincoln, who's in a great band called Red Jacket Mine as well. And uh, it's kind of a full circle. You know, you mentioned WMMS earlier and stuff like that. And Stag, I kind of jokingly say it's like I want Stag is like trying to be the perfect band that would have been like on the middle slot on like some band, uh, some show I would have seen in Cleveland in like 1981. You know, like if we were opening up somewhere between like Donny Iris and Cheap Trick. or the music hall in 1981 or something like that, that would be the perfect thing. But, you know, total like power pop, um, and we've done uh, two EPs, and we have a single that just came out uh, on Finn Records uh, 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 just about six weeks ago, and um, there's some videos up on YouTube and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, but uh, we're going in in January to record another uh, EP with uh, Jack and Dino, who's, Produced
0: all our stuff. We, you know, did Nirvana and Garden and Hot Hot Heat and a bunch of stuff like that. So. Right. Very cool. So um, I'll close it out with this. So uh, <coughs> all three of us, Jay, Tim, and I, I think we agreed on yeah. t- on, on two things. Um, kind of overall through the review is that, um, and I don't know if you find this hard to believe or not, but I hadn't really listened to Alcohol Funny Car um, until recently. Uh, you know, the Sanford Arm stuff I loved. And I knew right. you had been in Alcohol Funny Car, but I, had, you know, that was more of the does the pre-Spotify days and the pre, right. you know, all those other places to listen to stuff. Um, so, but like I said, we all agreed that that from from the band name and the album cover and everything, and even the label you were on is is I don't think any of us expected Alcohol Funny Car to sound the way you did. We we all had something different in our minds about what the sure. what the overall sound was going to be. So, that was the first thing. And the second thing that we all agreed on was that um, we all thought that Weasels, if, if you were to take a snapshot of 1994, 1995, if someone were to ask what indie rock sounded like, like we all thought that that, that record kind of encapsulated that sound. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's, you know, I think you're
1: probably saying the same thing that I was saying earlier, is that I heard my influences. Uh, heard the influences in it uh, a lot and um, i think so you know i mean i think from a production standpoint you know it was like it was we were still using tape then for everything we were definitely embracing sort of more 60s and 70s technology you know older amps uh you know vintage gear vintage outboard gear a lot of compression stuff like that and uh you know that definitely became a sound of that period of time and uh <clears throat> no i think you know I'm proud of that. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm just happy that anybody wants to listen to that stuff at all. And uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think that it. Well, not perfect. There's some real gems in there, and uh, and, I, and I'm proud, proud that we made it. And it's amazing that we're talking about it at all. Uh, you know, 15 years later. Yeah.